we still do uh, some of those uh, chants here at at my temple uh, for old times' sake, really. And we also uh, burn incense, which <laughs> might scandalize some of you, but um, a fair number of people actually uh, have mentioned to me that when they uh, first came here and noticed that we still offer incense, they were so grateful, they said. <laughs> so I guess we're getting all the people who like incense or feel they can tolerate it. Well, I'd um, much rather be there with you. Uh, this this uh, style of dharmic communication is, is, I don't find very congenial. And you'd think I'd be used to it by now. But uh, I'm actually not. And... Um, the feeling of uh, connection is extremely attenuated. And uh, all I see is little figures in a little box. <laughs> and somehow it's uh, lacking some of the immediacy that I've always associated with Dharma communication. But that's what we have, so... Also, it's uh, 56 degrees here at the moment. <laughs> something tells me it's a good deal warmer where you guys are. Different people have uh, different ways of engaging the Dharma in the context of a talk. And um, I don't know, maybe for reasons having to do with karma as much as anything else, I always feel like uh, there isn't time to do other than come to the point immediately. That is actually what our uh, practice is about. And coming to the point is the uh, well, we have this expression, the inexhaustible vow. That's another name for the source of our practice. And our our acquaintance with the source of our practice is what 
we can make available to others. Or rather, not so much we make it available to others, but others can avail themselves of it because of our practice. There's always this, uh, I don't know, tendency, maybe, a human tendency to to engage in what the our our old ancestors called falling into the secondary. And that is a waste of time. So it's good to dispense with all that is unnecessary as quickly as possible and come to the point. Uh, you might think, or or people might think, yes, well, we are learning how to come to the point. That's that's what we're doing in our practice. And I don't think that's quite right. Uh-huh. Coming to the point is, in fact, a kind of awkward expression. And since we are at the point all the time, Our practice is becoming acquainted with that over and over again. There's uh, an old saying, before the mind of the sentient being has departed, Buddha mind has arrived. So our practice is is essentially allowing all that is superfluous to fall away.
and believe it or not, that is the context for, you know, bowing and chanting and ringing bells and so forth. That is actually all about abandoning the superfluous. And then actually moving moving with or as the fundamental point. So we might bear in mind doing a prostration is not an exercise to prepare us for something. It's actually the unfolding Buddha mind. Do you um, recite that little um, little gatha that goes with uh, doing prostrations? Do you do you have that practice? Jimson, is that something that you guys do? Well, it's kind of nice. Maybe I'll just, there's these three little uh, gathas or verses you as recite as you do uh, three prostrations. They're very simple. I'll just pass that along as a way to relinquish the superfluous to embody the fundamental point. So as you're doing prostrations, with the first of three bows, Um, I have to confess, I've just forgotten a piece of it, even though it's something I do pretty often. Um, anyway, it'll it'll come back to me. Uh, let's see, it goes. Anyway, the second half (laughs) of the first line is um, uh, their nature, no nature. And I'll come back with the other piece in a second. So something, 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 their nature, no nature. And then the second bow, it's 
this body, other bodies, not two. That's what the second prostration. And the, the third one is, uh, you do the third prostration, plunging into the inexhaustible vow, one with all. Pardon? You do those yeah, those are those are recited internally, right? Right. Oh, I remember. It goes. Um, let's see. The one bowing, the one bowed to their nature, no nature. That's one. Then this body, other bodies, not two. That's the second. And the third, plunging into the inexhaustible vow, one with all. So we uh, we don't do this so much, but in many East Asian flavors of Dharma practice, reciting gathas of various kinds, and there are probably thousands of them, is uh, very, very common. And there is a section of the Avatamsaka Sutra that is full of these gathas. And when... Um, Thich Nhat Hanh came to uh, Tassajara during winter training in whenever that was, 82 or something. He was encouraging us to take take various gathas from the Avatamsaka and use them in our daily life for things like brushing your teeth and getting dressed and using the toilet and all of this stuff. So it was kind of nice, actually. And then he had us write our own. And so there's somewhere at Tassajara, there's a book of, of student gathas that, that uh, people wrote that I'm sure is long since ignored or fallen into dust. I don't know, Jim and Karen, I think you were there for that, weren't you? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, those were the days. Well, not really, but it's fun to say. Boy, those were the days. <laughs> yeah. So st- strictly speaking, you know, you can't even come to the point, right? Because that suggests that at some other moment you weren't there. That isn't so. And 
living and enjoying and appreciating our lives with that degree of immediacy is, well, I don't know, I guess you could say, well, that sounds exhausting, but it's not really. It's extremely enlivening. And that's the heart of Zazen, basically. We just uh, recited the, uh, you know, the hymn to the perfection of wisdom and the Heart Sutra. And the, the, um, I guess you could say the enigmatic quality of the, the perfect wisdom sutras. Well, that's all, that's about the same thing. And in Chan and Zen, they developed the maintained an emphasis on setting aside what is not needed, which is most things. So if that's the case, you, we might wonder, well, why then are there thousands of pages of perfect wisdom literature? <laughs> well, I think that was how people responded to the inspiration. Once the heart of Dharma is is recognized, it's quite inspiring. So I was reading a passage the other day, pretty much, you know, you read one perfect wisdom sutra, you've read them all, essentially. That's Slightly cynical attitude, but anyway, they pretty much just, you know, present the same fundamental point over and over again. So in this, this one passage, Shakyamuni says to the, uh, the illustrious, the venerable elder Subhuti, um, uh, Venerable Subhuti, how should a bodhisattva uh, uh, go forth and, and, and course in the perfection of wisdom? And Subhuti replies, well, blessed one, um, uh, 
there is there is no uh, no dharma by which I can recognize a bodhisattva, a an enlightenment being, a great being. There is no dharma by which I can recognize such a creature. Neither is there any dharma by which I can recognize perfect wisdom. And, he says, the, uh, the one who, upon hearing and encountering this, is not frightened, is not disturbed, is not confused, that one is indeed an awakening being, a great being. And that precisely is the perfection of wisdom. So the Perfect Wisdom Sutras constantly draw this circle. And and say, well, it's like this and this and this. And by the way, that's nothing. (laughs) Demonstrating to us over and over again that we are in orbit, so to speak, around the fundamental point and that that is our life. So the bodhisattva, the the enlightening being, the mahasattva, the great being, is no being at all. And when the recognition of this produces no disturbance whatsoever, that is perfect wisdom. And it is said that when Buddha was teaching the the uh, perfection of wisdom, practically whoever heard him, uh, as they say, um, attained the... Um, the equanimity in the face of nothing ever arising. So this is the fundamental point that is at the heart of our practice. We'd probably say, or I'd say, it's at the heart of Buddha Dharma.
and many folks give uh when they give dharma talks you know they they uh their particular inspiration is to speak of um well for instance how they deal with difficulties in their lives and i almost never do that not because i don't think it's valuable just when i open my mouth that's not what comes out it's uh it's very strange the light in this room has now gotten quite dim so it looks as though my head is floating in space unconnected to anything it's kind of, kind of how it feels too <laughs> oh yeah and uh once once subhuti had uh responded to uh shakyamuni that way shakyamuni said so it is subhuti so it is i, I don't know i don't know if you recite the diamond sutra ever but it's the same thing there over and over again you know it's this or it's that or the bodhisattva is like this or like that and by the way there's nothing there and those those uh, teachings are as old as for instance the abhidharma teachings so they go way back uh into that that uh the the fog of history that we will never penetrate because those connections are lost reminding us that as the the former abbot of this temple uh Isan Dorsey used to say well Buddhism is just you know people make it up as they go along and that's true and has always been true and i would say even shakyamuni buddha made it up as he went along based on his extraordinary insight into reality
So that means even uh, when we have, uh, if we have some extraordinary insight, well, then what? Then we just go on. That's all. Just go on. Meaning we know what to do. And because before the mind of the sentient being has departed, the Buddha mind has arrived, we can have great confidence in our practice. And that includes our interactions with each other and with the world. You may know that in um, the branch of Tibetan Buddhist practice known as uh, Dzogchen, there's a lot of um, kind of window dressing, which is sometimes helpful and sometimes not. But one of the, I would say the most, the fundamental aspect of that flavor of Buddha Dharma is pointing at the fundamental nature of mind. I forget what the Tibetan expression is, but pointing out the nature of mind. And in Chan and Zen, they have, or we have uh, various uh, gestures and you know, uh, shouting and uh, brandishing the fly whisk and all this stuff. And all that is meant to do is to remind us, don't fall into the secondary. Insofar as there is such a thing as Buddha nature, it is here now. And as that gata says that I just recited, that nature, no nature. As we say in our ordination ceremonies, this is the path of freedom for all beings. We also say the path of mercy for all beings, but it's the same thing.
Well, as I feel like the darkness is slowly swallowing me up here. So maybe I better ask for some questions. You are you are few in number this evening, so feel feel free to raise your hand uh either electronically or literally. It looks like Oscar. Yes. Ah, hi. Hi. Hi, Mio. It's nice to see you. Um, <laughs> peering from the darkness. Yes. So, um, hmm. uh, something seemed to arise. Uh, for instance, your words tonight seem to arise. So, um, what is it that seems to arise and what is it that does not arise? Well, I think you can answer that as well as I. Uh, uh, Things are constantly appearing to arise. But nowhere in there is to be found anything like a fixed nature. That's just how it works. So is it is it uh, our consciousness, the nature of mind, that 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 does not change? Well, in a sense, I suppose that's true, but um, kind of, so what? All we need to do is keep referring back to what's fundamental. If we have any question about the nature of this body-mind, then keep watching see if you can you can locate some some fixed point or principle i uh, suspect that will never happen but we can always try but even in the absence of of a fixed point or principle um there's Stuff is happening, a great deal of stuff. Stuff appears to be happening, yes. You're implying that stuff, however, is not happening. Well, that's the teaching, isn't it? Yes, have I heard? Yes, you have heard. I I wish I could turn on another light, but the electricity in this place is constantly going on the blink. So we can actually see you. Oh, you can. I, I plugged in this, I plugged in this lamp the other day and the electrical connection behind the plug disappeared down into the wall. So I can't even plug it in anymore. So I'm sorry. 
See, things things arise and disappear. <laughs> yes, they certainly seem to, include, including us. Yes, including us. I'll be uh, 72 uh, on Friday. So I sort of feel like, yeah, I think, you know, however I may feel about it, the disappearing part is kind of approaching. Congratulations. Have a wonderful birthday. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the day after and the day before. Ah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hello, Mio. It's Doralee. Hi, Doralee. Hello. Um, would you please say more about what you meant when you said mercy and freedom are the same? Well, I guess that's not quite right. It's not that they're identical. But the path of freedom leads to mercy for all beings, a merciful heart. And, and the intention that, that all, all those beings eventually be free. And that is a fundamentally merciful attitude. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, that, that makes a lot more sense. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. It's the wish for all to be free, the and communicating or relating to people from that wish mm-hmm. is an expression of mercy. Yeah, and... Uh, uh, that is, in fact, what what is meant by the inexhaustible vow in that third gatha of of uh, prostrations. That all beings be brought to that um, understanding. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Mio. I'm Valerie. Hi. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for the talk tonight. So my question is, um, I am a master at falling into the secondary. And (laughs) would you recommend, uh, I I know the idea is not to beat oneself up for knowing that I'm falling into the secondary. So is the idea to, to at first just be aware of it and then not beat oneself up? And is the idea to just know that it will naturally, I will naturally begin to stay in the, I don't know what you would call it, the primary instead of the secondary through meditation and practicing, studying the Dharma. Mm-hmm. Well, is that the idea? Um, we we don't have to do anything to stay in the primary. 
Uh, and in fact, trying to stay in the primary, that's the secondary. And you, you, you will have run across our many, many Zen stories, right? Our campfire tales from Chan and Zen. And the adepts were often teasing each other about falling into the secondary. There are even some explicit stories about that. But that's very often what's going on. And, you know, one will have asked some question and, and the, the other person will respond. And then the first person will say, I think you just fell into the secondary. And then second one's like, how dare you? And they go back and forth. And that's what it's all about. So even the adepts might fall into the secondary. And if, as and when that happens, they very much appreciate being reminded, don't do that. Since you have no choice but to be here now, don't waste time with anything else. So I would I would abandon the notion that you are plagued by constantly falling into the secondary. Kind of let that go. Thank you. I see a, there's an electrical. Simone has an electrical hand in space here, so let me ask her what she would like to say. Hi, Reverend Mio. I'm Simone here and kind of hovering between San Jose and Sacramento. Um, so my question is the notion of surrender when putting aside the secondary. How does that relate to surrendering, like surrendering to what is? Just kind of just wondering where that fits in if it does. Well, um I guess uh, not surrendering to what is, is the source of suffering. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean there might not be something challenging in front of us that we have to take care of, but then that's what is. And thinking that we can escape from that is really the source of misery. And the practice of zazen is like a reminder over and over. No, we don't, can't escape. And trying to do so is the source of suffering. So surrendering, where does surrendering fit in there? Well, I'm Uh, not sure. I'm not sure I would use that. I wouldn't use that word particularly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you could say accepting. Mm. That's another mm. word. Accepting that the fact that, oh, yeah, here and now, that's all there is. Okay. Thank you. Was there maybe one more question there in the Great Assembly? Is that this used is, so on, son? Yes, it is. Ah, okay. Uh, first, I'm falling first into the secondary, which is, will you please, uh, please, for the sake of uh, 
my worrying about it, uh, investigate your plug. Oh. <laughs> because, because that that might be a serious situation. That, yeah. That there's oh, hot wires there, you know, and uh, please look into it if you would. Yeah, uh, I. Someone look into it. I meant to, honestly, um, but you're right. Uh, in a 110 year old building, it would be better not to ignore that. Thank you. Uh, the the song here, I think, is united in asking you to look into it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, but then the other question I had uh, was, um, are you taking uh, a certain metaphor and and uh, and putting it in uh, plain language when you say, uh, before the sentient mind of the sentient being departs, the mind of uh, awakened being arrives? Are you taking a certain metaphor and, and doing something with it there? Uh, oh, um, for instance, um, uh, before the donkey departs, the horse arrives? That one. <laughs> that one. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I, ne I never heard anybody uh, do that with that metaphor. So, Good Lord, I hope I didn't make that up, but maybe I did. That, that, that was creative. <laughs> but anyway, the other thing that was rising when you were talking was um, something like um, uh, the, the, the phrase that came to mind was uh, yeah, keeping keeping the channels open, keeping the channels open. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I think there's a Leonard Leonard Cohen song that has that line in it, or something like that. But um, it's it seems like we we uh, can benefit from doing some, you know, um, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, keeping keeping the channels open. Um, well, that's a, as you probably know, that's a yogic metaphor, and and that the practice of certain forms of yoga is devoted to opening and keeping open the channels. Mm -hmm. So that notion also goes way back. That's the heart of of uh, highest yoga tantra, as a matter of fact. Yeah, I guess I have uh, remembered that kind of language from yogic practice. Mm -hmm. But our ancient teacher, Richard Baker, used to uh, refer to us as yogis, I think, sometimes. Yes, he liked to do that, didn't he? Yeah. Well, that's all. Nothing really major. Thank you. Except well, the plug. Uh, except the plug. Okay. Uh, well, maybe before the darkness swallows me completely, I sh I should say good night and uh, thank you all for your patience and for your practice and and for your celebration of the primary.